You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. I can't see you. I know you're out there, and I'm glad you're tuning in this morning online. Uh, if you will turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, a, a crucial chapter in the book of Acts where uh, a very serious question uh, is brought before the church and needs to be dealt with. And this is one of those crucial moments, not only in the book of Acts, but really in the entire New Testament. While you're finding your place, just a couple of things. Uh, first, we were supposed to have a, a blood drive uh, this week um, because of the circumstances we've had to face here. That blood drive will be put off another month. So uh, just keep your eyes and ears open for announcements about that. And we appreciate those who were willing to give this week uh, because of all that we've had to deal with here on campus. Uh, we found it uh, prudent to just kind of put that off another month. So just and uh, re-sign up at that time, and maybe even more of you will be eligible at that time to give, and we would love for you to participate in that. And of course, secondly, uh, as you know, uh, we had a, a case here on campus uh, last Sunday of uh, a positive COVID-19 case, and um, that caused us to have to do some things differently. You know, we, we had a plan in place, and uh, that plan is being played out now. We we as leadership had accepted the fact that it was not a matter of if, it was a matter of when. And uh, we uh, had the plan in place, and we've been working that plan all week. And so far, uh, no other positive cases have been the result of last Sunday. And uh, we want to just do our due diligence on that. And, and just so you know, also, uh, I had a, a test this week because uh, of my direct contact with the person that was here last week. I went ahead and had a test this past week on. Thursday, and of course, it came back negative. So just wanted you to know that. Just appreciate your prayers. One of the things that was so encouraging um, is seeing all of the positive responses online. You know, we, we put this out on Facebook so that people would know. And as you know, it's one of our primary ways of communicating with you. And what I saw over and over again, not only in the responses and replies to what we posted, is, is even private messages and even voicemails that I've got on my phone of, of you calling me saying that you're praying for the church, you're praying for me, praying for the staff, praying for the family that was affected. And uh, I just deeply, deeply appreciate that. And it says a lot about your walk with Christ. It says a lot about your love for this church and this community. And I just want you to know that I appreciate you. I love you. And uh, we're going to keep moving forward. So on August the 9th, so next weekend, next Sunday, a week from the day, we'll still be online. I have anything on campus. Uh, for the next week, and then we're going to be cleaning the building and all that comes along with that. Our next services back here will be August the 9th, and you'll be signing up just like you were before. We'll go right back into what we were doing uh, previous to today, and uh, we'll ask you to sign up and be part of our 915-1045 service. So we'll get right back to where we were, and we'll pick it right back up and keep moving forward. Acts 15. A very again a key moment in the New Testament, a key moment in the Book of Acts, and, and just to kind of set the the table for this text, uh, get a little story. Once upon a time, 
there was a young lady who married a man by the name of Mr. Law. Not actually Mr. Law, a guy who represents the law. And every day when Mr. Law would come home to his wife at home, he would have a list of questions that he would ask her. He would ask how her day has been, but then he would ask, did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything I gave you on the to-do list? And the list of questions would just go on and on and on from Mr. Law towards his wife. And his wife began to realize that Mr. Law, her new husband, was always demanding more and more and more, and it never seemed as though she ever met his expectations. That even though she did everything she could to meet his expectations, it seemed like the line always was moved. It seems like there was always another thing that needed to be done. Or it seemed like there was always this um, point in her life and the things that she was doing that she never did it well enough. That it seemed like the law, Mr. Law, was always hanging over her head and always showing the discrepancy between what he demanded and where she missed the mark. As time went on, the expectations grew and the demands got more and more frequent and nothing was ever good enough. Eventually, she would completely forget what was most important to him because it seemed like Mr. Law would always emphasize what she was doing wrong, not what she was getting right. So it seemed like day after day, uh, the line and the goalpost was always moving and she, she got to the point where she couldn't even remember what was most important to him anymore. It was a tough life. It was as though there was a, a yoke around her neck that she couldn't bear. Well, one day, Mr. Law dies. One day, Mr. Law dies, and she remarries. And she re remarries Mr. Grace. Now, there can be more contrast between Mr. Law and Mr. Grace. And it was evident early, very early in the relationship that Mr. Grace was totally, totally different. You see, when Mr. Grace came home from work each day, he would also ask how her day went. And as he would look around the house, it was evident that the house was in a mess. The kids were misbehaving, but all the to-do list didn't get done. It was obvious to, to Mr. Grace and to his wife that, that each and every day <clears throat> there was stuff that just didn't get done. It was obvious that, that the house was not always operating to pure perfection. But you see, Mr. Grace is different than Mr. Law. Mr. Grace would sweep her up in his arms. He would say, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. And nothing you will ever do, nothing you will ever do, nothing you will ever fail at, nothing you will ever miss the mark, it will cause me to walk away from you. There were even times during the marriage that, that this young lady even had other men in her home while her husband was at work. He knew that. But it didn't change a thing. You see, grace, that undeserved favor, that love that, that was not based on her response or her actions or her doing all the things right, that, that grace based on the fact that, that he loved her for who she was and accepted her for who she was. And over time, this wife began to realize that the law, Mr. Law, could have never changed who she was. 
All the law could do was point out what she was getting wrong, but, but Mr. Law could never change her heart. You see, it's only Mr. Grace that can do that. And it's through that unconditional love and that unconditional mercy that changes us from the inside out. It's a love like that. It's a love like that that changes us. Well, you know, in that story, obviously, Mr. Grace is none other than Christ himself and what he accomplished on our behalf. I know it's a kind of a ridiculous story, but I think it points out a truth. And that truth is, is that grace is what changes us. God's love is what changes us. And we have a tendency towards legalism, the law. You see, there's something in us that we love to have a list of things to do and not do. We, we tend towards this, this desire in us to, to want to have a list of things that we know we're supposed to do. And as long as we do them and do them well enough, we have this feeling or this assurance that we're on some kind of right side of the law here, that, that it's all about the scales. And as long as we put enough weight on one side of the scale, good works, everything's okay. We have a tendency towards that. Paul and Barnabas have had to deal with confrontation after confrontation after confrontation. They, they've had to deal uh, with uh, false prophets and false teachers, Barasu. They've had to deal with every town that they've went into has gotten increasingly more angry and increasingly more hateful towards Paul and Barnabas and towards the message that they're sharing to the point where Paul is almost beaten to death and thrown outside the city. And if it wasn't for God's grace and God's provision, Paul probably would have died. Beaten and bruised, maybe broken bones and all, he gets up and goes right back into that Gentile community called Lystra where there was no presence of the gospel whatsoever, not even a Jewish synagogue, that Paul was so driven by the message of the gospel being, being put forth in front of people who were desperately lost that nothing would sideline him. Paul and Barnabas travel 1,581 miles in 53 days. That's 30 miles a day. Of course, some of that was by ship. Uh, but 30 miles a day in, in very difficult circumstances, being hated everywhere they went. God had opened a door to the Gentiles. Paul makes his way to Lystra and Derby, areas that had no synagogues, no presence of Judaism, no presence of light whatsoever. And Paul goes in begins to teach and to talk about Creator God and no doubt to eventually teach them about Jesus. And no sooner than they were giving, giving God glory for, for what God had done among the Gentiles, another problem presents itself. And, and this time it's not from without the church. It's not outside the church where this problem turns up. No, it's inside the church. You see, the church of Jesus Christ, not only do we have to deal with what's out there, the, the, the pushback on the gospel and, and the hatred that is growing for the church, but we also have to deal with conflict on the inside. And, and oftentimes what, what sidelines churches, what causes churches to divide, what causes church and churches to be in disarray, a lot of the times is not about what's out there. It's about what's inside. It's about that corrosive nature of things going on in the inside that are left unchecked that tends to destroy or corrode from the inside out. And, and this issue that, that Paul and Barnabas and Peter is going to show back up, have to deal with here, is, is corrosive. It's going to eat away the foundation of grace that the church is built upon. 
Paul and Barnabas, after their first missionary journey, make their way all the way back to Antioch. Not Antioch and Pisidia, but Antioch and, and Cilicia, the, the home base for Paul's operations. And they begin to talk about all that God has done and all that God did through, through that missionary journey, and they're excited. And, and then all of a sudden, there were some people that show up, begin to push back. It's always been amazing to me that no matter what great move of God there is, no matter what a, what a beautiful moment of worship, a, a beautiful moment of people coming to faith in Christ, a beautiful moment of the church moving forward in, in the gospel and the Great Commission, there are always people who speak against it. Even a great move of God, there are always people who are ready to pour cold water on what God is doing simply because of this corrosiveness that we're going to talk about today that it eats away the body of Christ from the inside out. Legalism is corrosive to the gospel. Legalism undermines the gospel and adds works, law, back to the gospel of grace. It eats away at grace and mercy and forgiveness. And what we want to look at this morning is how we can recognize it because we have all have a tendency to do this. We all have a tendency towards law and legalism as as Christ followers who's been delivered and set free from the law because Christ kept the law on our behalf we have a tendency to turn back to it and use it as an opportunity to judge others to make ourselves feel good about how righteous we are notice in chapter 15 verse 1 but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's Paul and Barnabas in Antioch and Cilicia, and they're, they're telling the church there that sent them on this missionary journey, telling them about all that God had done, that, that people had come to faith in Christ, the disciples were made, and not only that, that churches had been established in these areas, that, that Paul had raised up elders. In 53 days, Paul was able to establish churches, raise up elders, see disciples made, and leave those areas into the care of people who had just come to faith in Jesus. That's something to celebrate. That's an incredible feat. And without God's intervention and God's power in that, it couldn't have happened. So Paul and Barnabas are having a big old party with the church at Antioch, and they're all celebrating the fact that God is moving among the Gentiles. But of course, there was a few there. And no doubt they're there because they heard about what was happening among the Gentiles. They've come up from Judea. They've come up to Antioch and Cilicia for the sole purpose of pouring cold water on this worship celebration. Now I want you to notice what their argument is. It says here, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So what are they saying? They're walking into this church and they're saying among Paul and Barnabas who've just seen a mighty move of God that there is no way that those Gentiles in Lystra and Derby can, can be born again unless they are circumcised in the flesh. They have just walked in and said that the gospel itself is not enough. That there must be a work of man. There must be a, a cutting of the flesh for them to actually be saved. I want you to hone in on that phrase, the custom of Moses. Here's the first thing I want you to do. If we're going to recognize legalism, if we're going to recognize it, 
one of the first things we need to see is that legalism always has its roots in a mixture of Scripture and human opinion. It always has this mixture of customs, traditions, and a little bit of Scripture, usually both put together where we have the output or the result of something that is not even based in Scripture. You see that custom of Moses? The traditions, the, the laws, the, the things that were being passed down. The Pharisees would often rely on the oral traditions, not necessarily what God had said through Moses. So you had the law of Moses, those 613 laws that came by the hand of Moses, but then the Pharisees and the religious leaders began to add more and more and more and more out of their own traditions and their own customs. If you go back to Mark chapter 7, you'll see where Jesus confronts them about this. He says there in Mark 7, he says that they had left God's commands to hold to tradition. He says there that they were teaching as God's commands the traditions of men. Men from Judea believe that a man must be circumcised to be saved, yet Paul and Barnabas have witnessed the salvation of who knows hundreds of people apart from circumcision. Legalism will always, always have a mixture of really bad biblical interpretation and the opinions of humanity. And when you begin to look at what Scripture actually says, you begin to find out that whatever this legalistic requirement is has no foundation apart from human tradition. So one of the first things we can do in recognizing legalism is to look at what's being said and what's being pronounced as truth, take it back to God's Word and, and ask the question, does God's Word actually say this and is it a requirement? Is it binding? These men that had come down from Judea were taking tradition, a little bit of God's Word, mixing it all together, and making requirements upon the Gentiles for salvation. The second problem we're going to see, notice what happens. It says, and after Paul and Barnabas, verse 2, had no small dissension and debate within them. I bet that was an interesting debate. It says that some of the others appointed them to go up to Jerusalem, the apostles and elders, to see about this question. So the church at and Antioch says, we need to deal with this. We need to put this to rest now because this is connected directly to the gospel. Is it required for someone to be circumcised, to be saved? And if so, what about all these people who've come to faith in Christ under Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey? Somebody needs to make an answer here. Somebody needs to, somebody needs to come down on this and tell us what's going on. So they're going to send Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem. I want you to see the beauty of the connection between the church at Antioch and the church of Jerusalem. They didn't see themselves as opponents. They saw themselves as one body of Christ. But these elders in Jerusalem have been around from the very beginning. The church at Antioch respected the church at Jerusalem, so they sent Paul and Barnabas back. Look at verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. This is Paul and Barnabas. They make it to Jerusalem. And the apostles and elders, and they declare... See, it says, welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So when Paul and Barnabas get down to Jerusalem, they begin to share all that God had done among them and through them to the Gentiles. And, and so the second thing we see 
here. The second way we can begin to identify legalism is that right here it says that it is necessary. You see, legalists always say that there's one more thing necessary. There's, there's always one more thing that we have to do, one more thing we have to do to earn God's favor, one more thing we have to do to put on the scales to tip grace in our favor. And it says here that there were some in the church at Jerusalem who were saying that it was necessary to circumcise them. It was necessary. Now, of course, we have to go back and look at see what Jesus said is necessary. Did he say circumcision was necessary? Of course he did. Nothing we've seen in the church thus far has said that circumcision or any other outward work was necessary for salvation. They added to the gospel. We can always pick up on legalism when we have the idea that, yes, put your faith in Jesus. Yes, repent and believe. Yes, surrender yourself to Christ. And then we get, and you must be a member of the Baptist church. And you must be baptized. You must do this. You must do that. And, and when we begin to hear that there are other things necessary to cross from death unto life, anytime you hear anyone say, that there is something else necessary for salvation other than repentance and belief, the red flag should go up. You'd be surprised at how many ministries just here in our community teach that water baptism is required for salvation. That if you've not been water baptized, then you haven't been saved. And yet, the Scripture does not teach that at all. What happens is we take a little bit of tradition and a little bit of misunderstanding about God's Word, we mix it together, and what comes out on the other end is legalism. So we have the mixture of Scripture and human opinion as one flag. We have things being added to the gospel as a necessary requirement as another red flag. But notice this. Verse 6, the apostles and elders, this is, Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them. All of a sudden, Peter is back. We haven't heard from Peter in a while. But you remember the last time we talked about Peter, several weeks back, you remember the, the struggle that he had in going to the house of Cornelius. And you remember that, that God showed him a vision of a sheep coming down, and he says to Peter, Peter, rise up and eat. And Peter's like, no way. His legalism would not, well, would not allow him to even go into the household of a Gentile. Yeah, where do we find Peter? We find him at the house of Cornelius. And what do we find at Cornelius' house? We find Peter teaching them and proclaiming them the gospel. Not only that, we find out that God was already at work in Cornelius' house, drawing his family to salvation. Peter goes there, realizes that God is doing exactly the same thing among these Gentiles as that he's doing in the Jerusalem church. And it changed Peter from the inside out. Peter had a kind of a crisis of belief. Because Peter was leaning towards the idea that, yeah, you ought to keep the law. But on that day, 
Peter realizes that God is up to something. And here he says, he stands up and he says to the church, and no doubt Peter carried a lot of weight in this, in this meeting. Peter, the first one who preached right after Pentecost. Peter, the one who had walked with Jesus and was one of the inner three. Peter stands up and says, listen, guys, Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father is working among the Gentiles just as much as he is among the Jews. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. And here's the third thing I want you to, to notice of how we can realize and, and uncover and distinguish when legalism shows up. He says here in verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them. Peter says that God was no respecter of persons, that God somehow didn't focus on the Jews more than he did the Gentiles as far as the gospel being proclaimed and God accepting them into the kingdom. But you know what legalism does? Legalism always makes a distinction. Always. Always. You see, I think, I think that's one of the reasons people gravitate towards legalism. Here's, here's the point. Whatever we add to the gospel for salvation or whatever we add for people to keep after they begin following Jesus, whether it be in, in justification, salvation, or whether it be in sanctification, following Jesus, when we begin to add to Scripture requirements for people to keep, I think the reason we do that is so that we can have a hierarchy that says, I'm better than that person because I'm doing a better job at keeping these rules than that person over there. So we have this hierarchy that, that pride gets involved, and we begin to look down on other people because we see ourselves as more righteous than they. You see, legalism always, always makes a distinction. That's the point. But we use this translation of the Bible. We only do this in our church. We only abstain from this. We make this a big deal. And it goes on and on and on. And then it is used as a distinction between them and everyone else. And at the core of that, at the core is pride. The Bible has a lot to say about pride. Peter says that, that God is offering salvation even pursuing the Gentiles. Remember, salvation is God pursuing us. Peter says that God is pursuing the Gentiles and that when they believe and when they repent and when they put faith in Christ, they are given the Holy Spirit just like the Jews in Jerusalem. So there is no distinction between Gentile and Jew. That had to be, had to be an amazing thing for them to hear. Verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we would have been able to bear. The fourth thing, remember, it's a mixture of, of tradition and poor, poor interpretation of Scripture. It's, it's making a distinction between people groups. It is, it is also taking uh, and requiring necessary things upon the gospel that the Bible doesn't even teach or proclaim. And now we find that it's a yoke of bondage rather than freedom. Peter says, look, guys, you know as well as I do 
then none of us were able to bear up under the yoke of the law. None of us were. That even Paul, who's sitting there, as he recounts his testimony, as he's out on these missionary journeys, as we will see, Paul will talk about how he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, how he had all of, of the religious boxes checked, and yet he says that it was all rubbish in Philippians chapter 3. He says it was all garbage, that it was a waste of time, that none of it, none of it tipped the scales in his favor, that it was all a waste of time. Paul, if anyone had anything to brag about, it would have been Paul. Peter certainly would have had plenty to brag about. But Peter says that it was a yoke around our neck that we couldn't bear up. And why in the world do we want to put this same yoke on the necks of the Gentiles? You know why they were wanting to do it, right? It goes back to that previous, a distinction. The Jews prided themselves on being Jews and not Gentile. So if they could further separate themselves or, or force the Gentiles to be more like Jews, then how much better would it be for the Jews? But Paul and Peter are both saying that it was a yoke that none of them carry. It was a yoke of bondage that neither they nor their fathers could bear. And the gospel sets them free from that yoke. That's why Jesus could say, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. The burden is light. Jesus would often draw the distinction between the Pharisees trying to keep the law and how that outwardly they, they looked like they were righteous men, but inwardly they were corrupt. Peter says that they're placing a yoke around the necks of the Gentiles. Look at verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of Lord Jesus Christ. If you are if you're lost, you've never put your faith in Jesus. There is a danger, especially when you first become exposed to the church and maybe you start attending church for a while, but there is a danger where we begin to think that simply attending a church and, and simply being part of the ministries and, and simply maybe, maybe giving something financially, that, that somehow all of that, and if you do it enough, equates to salvation. And we can, we can get to this place where we inoculate ourselves with that kind of thinking, and we can go through our entire life thinking that, that church membership and being part of a local body and, and involving ourselves with that, that somehow that equates to salvation. And somehow the more we do that, the more it tips the scales in our favor that somehow when we stand before God, our church attendance and our church membership and all the things that we've done are going to be enough to get us into the kingdom of God. And one of the scariest verses in the New Testament was where Jesus says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never do. How could that happen? Well, it's this idea that we buy into works that that's enough somehow. But that's somehow enough to give us new life. You know as well as I do. You know this, that it's a yoke or injury. You know as well as I do that, that trying to check all those boxes every day is absolutely a futile attempt. There's no way you can. So, so might I offer to you the same thing that Peter is saying in this Jerusalem council thousands plus years ago, 2,000 years ago, that, that Peter is saying that it is by believing, verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through grace. Peter says that we can boil it all down to this, that for the person who's been addicted to drugs, for the person who's been involved with, with all kinds of evil, the, per, the person who has given their life over to adultery and sexual sin, 
Peter says it comes down to this. It's not about you cleaning yourself up. It's not about you becoming a better person. It's not about you joining 15 churches. It's about you believing in Jesus Christ and the death that he died on your behalf to give you the freedom that you could never find in doing good works by yourself. Why in the world would you, why in the world would you not want to get in on that? To me, it's one of the most freeing things you could ever hear is that it's Christ working in you. Christ drawing you to Himself to set you free from the legalistic requirements of the law you could never beat on yourself. That you could never, ever complete and obtain and earn righteousness. What's going to be interesting about this is, is that what James is going to deal with next is, is that up until this point, the, the question has been settled among the elders that there is nothing we can add to salvation. So we can either add to salvation and we can either subtract from it that, that it's not about you being a good person or, person or anything else. It's not about you keeping the law because you can't keep the law. There's no way you can. The requirement of entry into the kingdom of God is absolute perfection. How's that working for you? It didn't work for me. I need someone who was perfect on my behalf. I can't do it. I can't obtain that. If that's what you're grasping for, if that's what you're running after, let me just tell you now, it's going to be an utter failure. There's no way you can be good enough. There's always going to be another demand. There's always going to be another requirement. The goalposts are going to be moved. No matter how good you are, you will not be good enough. That's where Jesus comes into the equation because he was good enough. He was perfect. That's why faith in him turning from your old life, turning from everything that you believed about the world, turn from all of that, turn to him. What does that look like? What does that, what, does that, what does that sound like? What does it look like when a person does that? Well, Peter says it's believing. We've seen by Paul's teachings that it's repentance. What does that look like? To be, to be willing to say, Lord, I've made a mess of my life. I am lost. I am a sinner. I, I can never be good enough. To, to, to admit that you're broke. No amount of doing good things will ever fix what's broke. And then realizing that Jesus took your sin upon himself, realizing that, that Jesus kept the law on your behalf, and realizing that Jesus offers you freedom, that, that we begin to turn from our old way of doing things, and we turn towards Jesus and we believe that Jesus did, in fact, die on that cross in your place. That Jesus did, in fact, resurrect from the grave. And it's that surrender of your life, surrender of control, and following Jesus. Is that a prayer you pray? Can be. Is it something you just cry out to the Lord? Yep, can be. Is it where you seek somebody else out and, and ask them about how they came to faith in Christ? Absolutely. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Maybe today, maybe today, right where you are today, you cry out and say, Lord, I've had enough. I can't do it. And we stop 
accept the fact that we've missed the mark. Maybe you do that by a prayer where you cry out to God and say, God, forgive me of my sins. I'm a sinner. I've lost, and I'm turning my life towards you, and I believe. I believe in you. Maybe it's taking someone in your house right now by the hand, taking someone in your home by the hand right now who's born again and looking at them saying, I want this. Peter says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. James now is going to talk about not only is legalism dangerous to add to salvation, it's just as dangerous when we begin to add it into our walk with Jesus. We're just as guilty after we come to faith in Christ of trying to add legalism and works back into our walk with Jesus. And that yoke that is just as burdensome before we come to salvation is just as burdensome after we try to follow Jesus. Doesn't work any better there either. Well, we have a tendency towards lists and things and law requirements. Look at verse 12. And the assembly all fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related that signs and wonders had been done, that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Notice what James does here. James, James realizes, or he's already realized, he's already, he's, already, he's already on board with the idea that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. But he affirms what Peter has just said. And what has Peter said? Peter said that the gospel has gone among the Gentiles and there's no difference between us and them, that, that God is working among them just as much as he is in the Jews. So the, the issue of salvation has been settled. The issue is that circumcision is not required for salvation. The law of Moses is not required for salvation. But what about this division that James sees? Now James has become a, a pretty powerful leader in the Jerusalem church. Jesus Jesus' half-brother, James. And, and James has great discernment and great wisdom, and he sees a problem. And the problem is, is that, that this issue is not going to go away, and that if they don't deal with some things, there's never going to be unity between Jew and Gentile, which is what the church was made up of. So James, to further show his support that salvation is by grace alone, begins to quote Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and basically he says that, the prophets had already talked about that the Gentiles would be reached, that the Gentiles would be included in the kingdom of God. So the prophets of the Old Testament agree with what Peter is saying and what Paul is saying and what Barnabas is saying that the prophets had already said this was going to happen. So everybody just needs to calm down. <laughs> James says that what's happening is what God said would happen. He quotes Amos. Look at verse 19. Then, he says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, we should not add to the gospel of grace the works of the law. But notice what he does next, verse 20. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim to him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Wait a minute. Is James contradicting himself and contradicting Peter and Paul and Barnabas? Does it not sound like James has just said 
to the Gentiles or what's going to be written in a letter to the Gentile churches, does it not sound like James has now turned right around and added law back in to walking with Jesus? In other words, he, he gives four things here. He says that they should abstain or stay away from things that have been polluted by idols. In other words, meat that had been offered in pagan rituals to false gods that was prevalent among the Gentiles. We saw this in Lystra. This was happening in Lystra when they were worshiping Zeus and Hermes and all those, those false gods of Greek mythology. They would offer animal sacrifices to those false gods. So, so James says they need, to, they need to abstain from that. And not only that, but they need to abstain from sexual immorality. Another thing that was running rampant through the Gentile communities was sexual immorality. The, the Greek word is pornea. And that includes uh, things such as adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, all of those things kind of come under that, that, that heading of pornea. And, and James says that they should abstain from that. Third thing he says is that they should abstain from eating animals or eating meat where they have been killed improperly, where they have been strangled, and the blood was still in the animal and in the meat, and that the Gentiles would, would carve that up and eat it with blood running out of it. And then, of course, the last one is that they should abstain from, from consuming blood. Now, this sounds very Old Testament, does it not? I mean, three out of the four things seems to be corrected, connected right to the ritual worship practices of the Jews. Sexual immorality would also fit in there, but it seems to be kind of an outlier to the other three. But all four of them, James says that the Gentiles need to follow. Now, what is he doing? Is he adding law? Is he trying to force Judaism into Christianity? Not at all. Not at all. What he's saying, he says to the Jews, he says, guys, leaders, you're going to have to accept the Gentiles into the fellowship. You're going to have to accept that God is working among the Gentiles, that they've got the Holy Spirit, they've been redeemed and born again. Jews, you've got to accept them, and you can't add circumcision or any other requirement of law upon that. So the Jews are forced or required or painted into a corner to say, you can't add or subtract anything from the gospel. Then, then James turns to the Gentiles. He says, okay, if we're going to live together in a community of faith, a koinonia, a fellowship, of love, mutual respect. The Gentiles, I'm going to ask you, chill abstain from some things. I know you have liberty. I know you have the liberty in following Jesus to participate in, in at least three out of these four. Six around morality was never something that they could do or participate in. We see that all through the New Testament. But these ritualistic practices concerning the sacrifice of animals and whether an animal had been sacrificed to a false god or not, whether they could eat it, they could have some liberty. And as we go into the New Testament further in Paul's writings, we find out that in certain areas there was liberty. Do you know what James says? James says, Gentiles, I'm going to ask you to do something. Not for salvation. Not for righteousness. But so that Jew and Gentile can live together in brotherhood and sisterhood, I'm going to ask you to give up these things. I'm going to ask you to abstain from these things. That way you won't be an offense to your brother who's sitting across from you. Remember, in this New Testament church, something that was a huge deal was fellowship meals. We've seen it all through the book of Acts where they would come together in someone's house and they would sit down and have a meal together. And in this culture, having a meal together was a huge deal. Did you know that when we look at the book of Revelation, when, when the final kingdom is in place, you know one of the first things we're going to do with Jesus? We're going to have a meal together. 
called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. We're, we're going to sit down to a meal together. Meals were hugely important where people would come together and, and worship and, and celebrate and, and, and have friendship. James saw the problem. James saw that this is going to be a huge issue that if we don't ask the Gentiles to let go of some things and we let the Jews let go of some things, that there's no way this community is ever going to be one. I think James is using some incredible, incredible insight here. The point is, is that after we follow Jesus, we may have to give some things up. Not legalistically, not required by checking a box, but because if we're going to be on mission, if we're going to be impacting the rest of this world and we're going to be a unified body, there's going to be some things that we could freely participate in that we choose to give up for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of unity. That's not a legalistic requirement. That's simply recognizing that in Christ we have freedom, but sometimes that freedom can be a stumbling block to someone else. So we choose not to participate. I read an interesting story about one of the greatest entertainers the world has ever seen, Michael Jackson. Never a really big fan, but you'd have to admit that his impact on the world of entertainment was really unparalleled by anyone else. The story goes is that when Michael Jackson was really, really young and his brothers, the Jackson Five, when their father, Joe Jackson, was beginning to foster that talent in those boys, he began to see the talent that they had. He began to see a, a tremendous opportunity. So every day when Joe Jackson would come home from work, he would, he would clear out the living room in that small house that they lived in. They would turn the music on, and Joe would stand there, and he'd have a belt in his hand. And they would go through all the dance moves. And if, if one of the boys stepped forward when they were supposed to step back or stepped to the right when they were supposed to step to the left, all those boys knew what was going to happen. The father would take them in the back room with that belt and beat them over and over again until they got it right. This went on for years. Many, many years later, I think it was in 93 or 94, uh, Michael Jackson was doing this long interview with a particular news agency, and it was an extended interview, like hours and hours of conversation and walking through his ranch and seeing all that... Uh, all that he was and all that he had been able to obtain as a wealthy performer that the world, that the entire world knew his name. And every time that the interviewer was talking to Michael Jackson about his, his dad, Michael Jackson never referred to him as dad, not a single time. So over many, many hours of interview, the interviewer finally, as they were watching a video clip of, of the Jackson 5 performing, Finally, the interviewer couldn't help but ask, and, and he asked Michael Jackson, he said, uh, he said, I've noticed that all through this interview, whenever we talk about your dad, you call him Joseph. You don't, you don't call him dad. Why is that? And Mike said that, quote, when I was a kid, all I ever longed for was a dad, but all I ever got was Joseph. That legalism, that, that, that forcing, that that control, and that yoke. Michael Jackson knew something about that, not in respect to salvation, but certainly in respect to the family life that he grew up in. 
And see, legalism always takes you down a path of bitterness and anger because it never fulfills. It never it, it never it never provides what you think it will. It'll never give you the peace and the joy Jesus promised. Checking those boxes every single day, beating yourself down because you've missed the mark, going through that vicious cycle of of, of beating yourself up because you're always less than, you're always missing the mark because Mr. Law is always demanding more and more and more. Can I introduce you to Mr. Grace? Someone who wants to sweep you up in his arms and love you right where you are. Whether, you, whether you've been born again for 20 years or whether you've never come from darkness into light, let me introduce you to Mr. Grace, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He's reaching out his arms to you and he's saying, are you, are you tired of that yet? Are you, are you finally fed up of trying to be the best person, a good person? Are you, trying, are you finally tired of that yoke around your neck? Well, I'll offer you something else. I'll offer you freedom and peace and joy. I'll offer you true life. Isn't it about time we experience the grace that Jesus offers? Because I know we're keeping the laws taken. It's taking you to emptiness, anger, bitterness, hatred, pride, arrogance. Any time to lay all that down. Father in heaven, if it were not for your grace, we would all be lost. If it were not for your pursuit of us, there would be no hope for us. Father, we all realize that we didn't come looking for you. You came looking for us. And Father, what Jesus accomplished on that cross is enough. The gospel is enough. And we don't need to keep the law. We don't have to, to do that to get our entrance into the kingdom. And Father, we don't have to do that after we begin, begin following Jesus. Once we follow Jesus and once our sins have been forgiven, Father, we, we keep... We do things to bring honor and worship to you, not out of a legalistic requirement. Father, I pray that, that those who are watching today would recognize that maybe they have a yoke around their neck. Lord, that yoke has been such a burden for so long. Pray, Father, today they would find freedom in Christ alone. We love you. We thank you as we worship together around this last song. Maybe somewhere in the living room, maybe at the dining room table, maybe someone with a device that is sitting in their lap. They have finally confessed their sins, surrendered their life, believe, repent, find new life. Ask in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.